Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. Profile Theater is a theater company located in Portland, Oregon. Profile Theater centers the season around a season-long featured writer. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. Community Profile is an affinity space built around the structure of a free writing workshop. Participants in Community Profile meet, write, support, share, and bear witness to other people who may have walked a mile in their shoes. In Community Profile, we feature writers who have won awards and had numerous books published, as well as writers who are making their first foray into expressing themselves on paper. The result is writing that is singularly personal, provocative, powerful, moving, funny, tragic, beautiful, and that encapsulates the entirety of the human experience. What this podcast does is give those writers, those creators, a chance to share their life stories and their writing in a public forum so that we can celebrate and appreciate victories that have been won and challenges that have been overcome by people whose lives you may recognize or be experiencing for the very first time. With us today is Madison Mondew. Hello. And Madison is a playwright and a stage manager. Which is, uh, I have to say, it's not a combination that I see every day. You know, um, can you talk, like, which came first, the stage managing or the playwriting? Uh, playwriting came first. Um, I've been writing pretty much ever since I could talk. Um, and uh, ever since I could, like, hold a little crayon in my hands. My my brain going a thousand miles a minute. Um, and I, I still have that problem occasionally, uh, but I know how to harness it more now. And how do you do that? Uh, mostly by writing, um, a lot of just kind of work on uh, compartmentalizing and uh, learning how to um, distinguish a an irrational fear from a rational one. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, writing has always kind of been my way of processing what's going on around me. And because um, you know, like I, I feel like a lot of times I, I like listen to audiobooks. So when I go to sleep, mm-hmm. that same kind of. Yeah, like same kind of thing. Because my mind's going off in different directions. And if I listen to an audiobook, then I can yep. like focus Focuses on one thing in. that I'm listening yep. to. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, tell and yourself a story until sure. you can fall asleep. And you're staying with your family right now? Yeah, I live with my family. Um, so I'm the oldest of four siblings. Uh, I have my mom and dad, uh, my dog, and then um, me, uh, my two brothers, Henry and Grayson, and then my sister, Francesca. Um, and then Henry actually just moved back to Pittsburgh. He plays for the Steelers. So uh, they started what? up again. Yeah. <laughs> He's on the practice squad. As far as day jobs go, you have one of the more interesting ones that oh, I've yeah. ever heard mm-hmm. of. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah. Um, I work for the Northwest Mother's Milk Bank. It's a nonprofit organization. Um, we're basically a blood bank, but for human milk for babies. Um, so we take donated human milk, um, whether it's a mom who is just producing more milk than her baby can eat, or occasionally we'll get moms who have lost a child um, and want to donate in honor of their baby. Um, And we pasteurize the milk that's donated by them um, so that it is safe for uh, the consumption uh, for, for really fragile little infants. And um, then we distribute it to NICUs around the Pacific Northwest. Um, So I work there as a receptionist mostly. Um, 
I started out uh, as a courier for them and sort of just moved into the office. Um, it's really rewarding. In, in non-corona times, I get to meet a lot of babies, and that's great, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. super cute. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of my save-the-world job. Right on. Yeah. That's, a, that's great. What's the name of the organization again? The Northwest Mother's Milk Bank. Okay, so support them. And you have something that you want to share with us today? I do. I have a couple of pieces. Do you want to give us a little context for it, or do you want to leap right into it? Um, sure, I can give a little context. So um, the first one I'm going to read is from a piece that I'm sort of tentatively calling Parlor Game. Um, and it is... About it's sort of my my take on uh, Victorian Gothic. Um, Victorian Gothic is something that I have always really enjoyed reading. Um, obviously, you can't see this because it's a podcast, but I have a big tattoo of a Victorian ghost um, on my arm. Um, it was the like literary um, genre that I focused on a lot in college as a reader, um, and Victorian Gothic has felt very uh, relevant right now, especially because Victorian Gothic is all about going crazy alone in a house. And <laughs> that's what we've all been sort of doing in Corona times. Huh. Right, <laughs> right, sure. So um, I've been thinking a lot about that and uh, sort of wrote this uh, as a response to that feeling. Um, it started actually as a two-person scene for the Pulp stage, uh, who I've been working with for a while. Um, and... It wasn't really getting to where I wanted it to be um, as a scene, so I decided to try it as prose. Um, so I will jump into that. Great. Take it away. <clears throat> I have no great skill in communication with the dead. My talents have always been best suited to divination, the interpreting of signs and symbols from beyond. But grandmother had dutifully taught me to channel to call a spirit forward, to let it speak in its way. And this spirit had thus far not been too secret or discerning in its appearances, and had more or less the entire house convinced of its presence, or at least the entire staff, so I supposed it would, be, it would prove an easy ghost to call. Sit quietly, I told Felicity. Call out to the spirit with your mind. Reach out and guide it into the light. For some time, we sat in silence, huddled around the candle with the heavy dark pressing in, until it seemed to me that we were a lone sphere of light beneath a sea, and I had only to reach behind me to feel the icy chill of water, and perhaps a whisper of current made by something circling just beyond the light. Slowly, so slowly I nearly did not realize it, each one of the fine, thin hairs along my arms and the back of my neck began to rise, a rolling wave of chill and unease that built and rippled until my skin felt tight and wrong, until I nearly burned with the desire to turn and face what I knew crouched and swayed in the dark just behind me, until I could feel or imagine I felt the faintest whisper of breath against my skin. In. Then, abruptly, the sense was gone, leaving me cold and breathless in its wake, as though a dark shape had emerged from the sea beyond our light and in its mercy passed me by. 
By this point we had been sitting on the floor for a good long while, and the deep night chill had begun to seep into my bones as well. I nearly dismissed the queer certainty of the shape behind me as a fiction invented by my mind in the dark, but Felicity had gone so pale and rigid she'd shuddered so violently. The tiniest prickle of intuition at the base of my skull bid me stay a moment longer. Please, Felicity began, can't we... And then she stopped, abruptly as though someone had shushed her. Her eyes, round and gray as river rocks, caught twin steady flames at the centers. She was utterly still. What? I managed. My heart had risen into my throat, swelling and throbbing like a toad, squeezing my voice into a whisper. What's the matter? Felicity blinked fast and hard. She shook her head as if to dislodge some thought. It was a stiff, awkward motion, as though she had to fight against some force keeping her still. It's silly, she said. It's nothing. Tell me, I said. She drew a halting breath. It's as if there's a knock at the door only inside my head. Again that odd, stiff shake, again the utter stillness after, eyes not fixed far away so much as turned inward as though she could see the door in her mind, feel it thrum, a question, an invitation, a message. Grandmother had taught me what to do with messages. Answer the door, I said. Cool. Great, that's really lovely. Thank you. Do you have uh, an? Ex do you have a lot of experience with uh, Gothic and Victorian um, ghost stories? Yeah, I um, like I said, I focused on it a lot um, in my literature courses in college. Um, so I've read most of the big ones, Dracula and um, uh, the Turn of the Screw, and uh, that sort of thing. And a couple of the weirder ones. There's this one called The Beetle. That's totally wild, and I love it, um, but it was out of print for, like, 50 years, mm. uh, so there's no, like, literary analysis on it. There's not a lot of essays about it, but it's very similar to Dracula, um, except instead of a vampire, it's this, like, shape-shifting bug person, um, and uh, I was very inspired by that. I love a good haunted house. That's what it felt like, actually, when, when I read it, because I have all those same—because my mom— was mm -hmm. a big Dracula fan, and we had yeah. like a paperback version of the, of the book that was had been published like in 1933, so it was mm -hmm. really old. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, um, thinking about haunted houses and isolation and um, what we have to sit with when there's nobody else around. Um, that's kind of the, the theme of coronavirus times, I think. Um, was, I think was, everybody could probably benefit from yeah, was, reading a little Victorian Gothic. Absolutely, you know, uh, and it was it was neat because it was it was so different from everything else that we that we've presented on the show so far. Mm. You know, um, a little gothic ghost story. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's fantastic. Um, and then on the other side of the world mm -hmm. is your second piece. Yeah. Um, so I also brought in an excerpt from uh, the Beekeepers, which is a novel I've been working on. It's kind of my forever project. Um, uh, it uh, started out as, as a screenplay uh, I was working on in college um, and then sort of morphed into this uh, YA 
um, speculative fiction novel um, about a family of beekeepers living in rural Oregon. Um, and I wanted to explore this sibling dynamic that's um, similar in a lot of ways to my dynamic with my three siblings, um, where uh, we're all very kind of, we're all very different, uh, but we're all very close and very protective of one another. Um, and uh, I think part of my process with uh, dealing with the beekeepers um, was dealing with my brother's uh, diagnosis um, of type 1 diabetes, uh, which he wasn't actually diagnosed with until much later than usual. He was like 16 or something. Um, and uh, we went through this whole like very harrowing couple of months where we didn't really know what was wrong with him. Um, he would come home and just sort of pass out after school and he would sleep until the next day. Um, and he lost all this weight and um, it, it was very, very upsetting for me watching it because I didn't know how to help. And it was very upsetting for the family because nobody knew what was wrong. And, you know, all through it, he was saying, I really feel fine. Um, I don't really know what's going on. He was very active. Uh, he still is very active. And eventually um, they uh, tested his blood sugar at the right time because they, they think that his pancreas was sort of shutting off and then turning back on again for a while. It was in what's called a honeymoon phase um, before it stops working. Um, and uh, they tested his blood sugar and it was like three days away from a coma. Um, oh my God. And that was kind of months after these problems started. Um, and so the beekeepers deals with this family, um, all these siblings that are keeping bees together in rural Oregon. And one of them has a near death experience. Um, and the story sort of deals with how uh, the relationships between the siblings change as a result of the um, the accident. Um, and then there's uh, some spooky stuff thrown in because uh, I usually have some kind of fantasy element or horror element um, added in on top of everything else. It seems like we have this in common. Yes. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Let's take a break right here. This is Voices from the Real World featuring Madison Mondo. Now quiet, sweet sisters, and I will tell you again. This is the true story of the seduction of Marie Therese, the Queen of France. It started with a box. A gift from the Queen's cousin, Monsieur de Beaufort. You see now? Mi primo gave me a gift. Look at the size of the box. The scandal. Oh, the scandal that was to follow this Queen, the Princess of Spain. Ay, Dios mío. Es un African. A little one at that. Look, Louis. He's fantastic. Isn't he lovely? No? <laughs> Come here. Come, sit by me. In the king's chair. And there it began. In the king's chair with a painter reshaping her likeness, molding that haphazard smile into an enigmatic smirk, with the image of Nabo lightly drawn in, uncommitted, a mercurial impression barely perceivable. 
Las Meninas, a possibly true story by Lynn Nottage, directed by Don Monique Williams, is available for streaming December 2nd through January 5th, 2020 to members of Profile Theatre on air. Become a member and listen at profiletheatre.org. And we're back with Voices from the Real World featuring Madison Mondo. Right on. So uh, take it away. Great. Never gave much thought to what I would be if I wasn't a beekeeper. I could come home to that drone, the stiff white jumpsuit and hazy veil, the gentle tickle of a honeybee alighting on my bare hand. I always have. At six years old, I was already begging to follow mom out to the apiary in the mornings, wishing one of those white jumpsuits was small enough to fit me. I was 12 before she finally promoted me from jarring honey and melting wax to collecting combs in the field. My hands shook so bad I dropped the smoker three times. Not from fear, not exactly, but from awe or something like it. The ancient Egyptians were the first to keep bees, hives in hollow logs and woven baskets, blowing smoke from their mouths to the entrances to calm them during the harvest. They were the first to use honey as an antibiotic, to preserve it and its wax combs so well it is still edible today. They, believe it w- they believed it was a food of the gods, a divine substance invigorating to the soul. During mummification, they would anoint the body with honey to strengthen the spirit for its journey to the next life. They believed their bees immortal, guides in and out of the land of the dead. Five thousand years later, my grandmother started out with two hives as a hobby. She and Grandpa grew corn back then. One year they lost nearly all their crop to blight, and they scraped by selling honey and wax. Now here I was, keeper of nearly two hundred hives on site, a hundred more rented out to pollinate in adjacent counties. Now there I was, doing what I felt born to do. When I stood at the center of the apiary, I could feel as much as hear the drone, low and encompassing, resonating to my bones. When I closed my eyes, I imagined myself in a honeycombed house, walls dripping, yellow sunlight slanting in, my own body small and winged and thrumming. 208 is a new colony, and finally settling in after almost a year, they bawled their queens twice before we got one that stuck. When a queen doesn't do her job, the colony treats her like an enemy. They kill her and start over, sometimes at the cost of the whole hive. Colony can't live long without a queen. Mel's getting pissed. You and Kate and Vicky are up here all the time. What if that twine wasn't tied right, Ellie says. You'd fall, break your neck. Mom! Mom glances over her shoulder, honey still drizzling from the bucket. Your sister's right, Melanie. Mel pouts arms crossed across her chest and heels kicking against the side of the empty basin until Cade leaves his post at the long table and reaches up to let her jump into his arms. Come on, Squirt, you can help me. I hang up my jumpsuit and return to my return my smoker to the rack. I'm going to go see if George needs help. You're splitting those hives today like I asked, right? Mom calls down. Yeah, after breakfast. Don't forget. I won't forget, of course. Mel grumbles by the end of the table, watching me go, watching Cade shave honeycomb caps into the pail. They never let me do anything, she says. 
bunch of buzzkills, Cade says, and she laughs. She's the only one who will still laugh at that joke. (laughs) So I love this piece for so many reasons, but I have to ask you, why bees? Why bees? That's a great question. Um, I used to be really scared of bees, one of the many, many things that I am afraid of. Um, And uh, then... um, a really good friend of mine in college, Bridget Golombeski, uh, we were talking one day and she was like, oh, I love bees. If I had a family crest, I would put a bee on my family crest. And I was like, why do you love bees so much? And she was like, well, they're really cool little animals. And she started talking to me about um, kind of the what we think of as the hive mind, this idea of um, like all for one, the idea that a bee's sting will protect the hive at the cost of that bee. Um And uh, the more I kind of learned about how bees work, this idea of balling uh, that they do where if an attacker um, comes toward the hive and it's small enough, they'll cover it in bees and vibrate their muscles so hard that they cook that thing alive. Um, And uh, the more I learned about bees, the more I was like, these are weird little things and they're very cool. Um, And then mythologically, they have a lot of really interesting symbolism. Uh, Like I mentioned in the piece, the idea that they're um, able to travel between the land of the living and the land of the dead, that honey is kind of an immortal substance um, is very interesting to me. and uh, there are a lot of Greek myths that have to do with bees in interesting ways. Um, and so in preparation for writing this, I just kind of looked up everything I could possibly find about how bees work and how bees work in myth and storytelling um, and sort of used that to inform the piece. And, you know, uh, so much, I feel like so often... Um, one thing you'll find in really good writing is like a, a type of expertise you know, um, and I, you know, and I really felt like when I was reading this, like, you knew what the hell you were talking about, you know, <laughs> and, it was, and, and it was so much information that like, I just didn't know. And all of a sudden this was, you know, and it's like, you know, cause, uh, the, the human experience is so much, uh, so many niches, mm-hmm. yeah. right. That kind of like tell the truth that then reflects out to everybody else, yeah. you know, and this was one I hadn't seen. Yeah, you know, was uh, these, these, you know, these, this life of the of the beekeepers. Yeah, um, and the thing with about the Egyptians. Yeah, uh, and that they cultivated bees and mm-hmm. like blowing smoke into the hive to calm yeah. them down. I was like, what? What is all that? <laughs> and then um, when you talked about uh, bawling the queen, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and like if the queen isn't doing her job, the, the bees get rid of her. Yeah, you know. Of course, I never knew anything like. I was like, "What, really?" <laughs> you know, it was super fascinating stuff. You know, right in this because is this towards the beginning of the of the novel? Yeah, this is the opening section. Right. Um, so I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork of like, "Hey, this book's about bees," mm-hmm. um, but also um, get a lot of the sibling relationships and how their dynamic works into the opening scene, so that I could get pretty wild. Um, well, you know, and what's great about a lot of What's fun about a lot of science fiction fantasies world building. Mm-hmm, definitely. And um, uh, and I felt like this was a type of world building. Yeah. Like in, in, in writing this first passage, we're getting all this vocabulary mm-hmm. and all this knowledge about these about these different dynamics um, at work in this world that is really alien yeah. to ours, you know. Yeah, out in the middle of nowhere, keeping bees and kind of this insular um, 
uh, way of life that a lot of people don't really think about. Sure. Um, I wanted to it it eventually turns into not necessarily a horror but a thriller sort of piece. Um, and uh, I I wanted to lay the groundwork for a horror piece that's very bright rather than really dark. Hmm. Um, just like aesthetically and the way it kind of looks in your mind. I wanted to create this kind of idyllic hmm. scene sure. with the bees and the sunlight and the grass waving in the you know sunlight and whatever. Um, and then there's this very dark horror kind of underneath it. And I get into um, like colony collapse disorder, this uh, thing that is killing honeybees by the droves um, in the world. And uh, we still don't really know why. Um, and kind of get into this idea that if the bees start dying, then the entire sort of um, food chain collapses because the bees are pollinating all of our food. Um, so I wanted to kind of juxtapose that, this uh, crisis of colony collapse with a crisis of this accident that has changed this family kind of forever um, and playing with how... Uh, those two things interplay. Wow, all that sounds crazy topical and <laughs> uh, and super super interesting. You got an ETA for this baby? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I've it's one of those things where um, I I called it my forever project. I think um, and uh, that's true. I really don't think I'll ever be like to a point where I'm a hundred percent happy with it. Uh, but I'm hoping to push through and finish a draft by the end of this year. Right on. Right on. That's what I like to hear. I mean, I think you're off to a hell of a start. Parlor game, um, I don't really know. Um, I'm still kind of playing around with it. I would really like it to be a play. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, have been really fascinated by the few uh, productions I've seen with uh, Experience Theater Project. This um, this uh, thing that they're playing with where uh, the action is happening and the audience is kind of standing around it and you're invited to walk around on the set and sort of see the scene happening from many different angles and they have lots of things going on at once. I saw uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, uh, I think in 2019. Um, and then I saw their production of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, this past year. Um, and I've been really interested in doing a kind of environmental piece um, something where uh, the action is happening around you um, and you're kind of in the middle of it. And I think that a horror piece would really lend itself to that. Um, I really think that horror theater is kind of an underexplored area um, because movies and books are one thing. They're scary, but they're very safe in that you can stop them and you can turn right. them off. And if it gets too scary, you can kind of back up. But in theater, it's there. And you can't leave. And it's live. Yep. Right. <laughs> well, Madison, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. You have been fantastic. And uh, I really want to see what happens with this book. Yeah. I so would. I hope that you uh, finish it this year. I hope so, too. <laughs> okay. Um, so that was Madison Mondew. Um, with her stories, Parlor Game, and what was the name of the bee one? It's The Beekeepers. The Beekeepers, which looks to be fabulous. Thank you. Uh, and I am Bobby Bermea, and this is Community Profile, voices from the real world, real people telling their real stories. 
Thank you for joining us. And for more information about Community Profile or Profile Theater, go to profiletheater.org slash communityprofile. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org on air, where you'll find other episodes of Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. If you want to participate in Community Profile, let me know. Just write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. And that is it for this edition of Voices from the Real World. Voices from the Real World was put together by the creative team of Jamie M. Ray, Lion Producer, Robert A. K. Gagne, Sound Engineer, Rodolfo Ortega, Composer, and was recorded at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon, which exists on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. And my name is Bobby Bermea. One love and peace out. <laughs>